Thank you for joining this sermon podcast from Cornerstone Fellowship in Forest City, North Carolina. We hope that you are blessed and encouraged by today's message. Cornerstone exists to glorify God as we passionately pursue Him and make Him known through worship, discipleship, fellowship, and outreach. Here's today's message. Last week we opened up in a passage from Nehemiah. We will return there because we basically spent the day introducing Nehemiah. And let me just say this before I read the text, lest I forget later. I plan to be back this week, Wednesday. Men, I'm sorry that I missed Wednesday. I have been sick all week long. Even through yesterday, uh, I would not have been able to have preached. But I went to bed last night and I said, Lord, I know you put a word on my heart, so you must have plans for me physically that, uh, that I don't know about right now. And uh, so I'm here, and I feel better, and I thank the Lord for that. Had a tough week, but yeah, praise the Lord for that. I, I thank him. We'll begin reading in Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 1, the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now, it happened in the month of Kislev, which is mid-November, in the 20th year, that's of the reign of Artaxerxes, while I was in Susa, that's the winter getaway for the kings of the Persian Empire, the capital. And Hanani, one of my brothers, and some men from Judah came, and I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped and had survived the captivity about Jerusalem and they said to me, the remnant there in the province who survived the captivity are in great distress and reproach. And the wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are burned with fire. And when I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days and I was fasting and praying before the Lord of heaven. I said, I beseech you, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who preserves the covenant, hallelujah, thankful that he does, and loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear now be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant, which I am praying before you now, day and night. On behalf of the sons of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the sons of Israel, which we have sinned against you, I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, nor the statutes, nor the ordinances which you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word which you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you're unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my Sabbaths and do them, then those of you who have been scattered uh, were in the most remote part of the heavens. I will gather them from there and bring them to the place where I have chosen to cause my name to dwell. They are your servants and your people whom you redeemed, and by your great power and by your strong hand, O Lord, I beseech you, may your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and the prayer of your servants who delight to revere your name and make your servant successful today and grant him compassion before this man. He's talking about Artaxerxes, now I was the cupbearer to the king. I know we mentioned this last week, but just so we all know, we're at the very end of the Old Testament. During this period of time, we basically have three books that will give us the history of this time, Nehemiah, Ezra, and Esther. We also have three prophets that God will plug in at different times. Malachi, of course, the last one, but Haggai and Zechariah. They will come along in the middle of all of this. And then once Nehemiah's work is done, about 430 
uh, or so B.C., before, years before Christ, Malachi will come and write. And when he writes, we realize, as we said last week, that Nehemiah's story is one of faithfulness, not success. When you read the book of Malachi, you can tell that there's a whole lot of things that didn't get fixed and didn't get straightened out. And at the very end of the book of Nehemiah, we will find him so frustrated. He says, I was hitting people with my fist and pulling out their hair. That's a pretty tough deal. But Nehemiah was faithful, faithful to God. He's also cuts against the grain of this thinking that wherever you were born, you are likely to just adapt the faith of that area. There are people who are universalists who believe that everybody is going to heaven, that Christianity comes in tons of varieties. It may be Hinduism in one location, it may be Islam in another, but it's the same Jesus, different names, different ideas, and all of that. That's not true. That's not what the Word of God teaches. And we can even look in our own culture. Richard Dawkins spent much of his life in the most Christian part of the whole world, and he died a diehard atheist. Christopher Hitchens uh, spent most of his life in the most Christian part of the world, and yet he died a dire atheist. So, we know that's not true. We know Nehemiah has never even been to Jerusalem, never saw the place. He was born in captivity. There have already have been some who were back there working on the city a hundred years before this particular passage takes place. Uh, Zerubbabel, he had already taken a group back. Ezra will take a group back. And then finally, Nehemiah will return with a group himself. I'll just say this, brokenness before God is the key for this whole story. Nehemiah's heart is broken. And let me just say this about being broken before God. You know you're broken when no more excuses. You, you, you quit trying to legitimize behavior that you know does not bring honor to God you stop with all the clever explanations. You quit comparing yourselves to others that you feel like are worse than you. You stop blaming other people for your own issues. And, 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 and you're, you stop waiting on God to do something with somebody else. And you start to pray, God, please do that work in me. That's when we're broken before God. And until we get there, we can never see the hand of God work. So we're going to share with you this morning, broken before God, and we'll give you three reasons, or the passage gives us three reasons as to why Nehemiah was so broken before God. First of all, iniquity. Iniquity, it's another word that we have for sin. And there were two kinds of sin that he addresses in his prayer. One we would call public sin. In verse 6, he prays for the sins of the sons of Israel. As a matter of fact, a greater part of this prayer that Nehemiah prays has to do with the forgiveness of sins because he knows that unless God forgives their sin, then they're alienated from him, and he is the only hope that they have. That would help us so often when we are thinking about doing something that we already know we shouldn't do, been down that road before. If we could just stop and think long enough and, and absorb the truth that when I do this, I will alienate myself away from God it's not a place I can live forever. There's no way I can go on like this. So before I even start, I need to repent to God for even thinking such things. We, we need to be convicted of our sins. And I, I, I think nowadays it's hard to get people to even realize they are sinning. Uh, did, did you notice in verse 2 he asked about the Jews who had escaped? Had you gone to most of the Jews that lived in Babylon at this time and say, hey, uh, when are you thinking about getting out of this place? They'd think you were crazy. 
They loved Babylon. They had learned how to make money there. They had better houses in Babylon than they ever had in Jerusalem. The economy was great. You know, it's the economy, stupid. And so that's the way they saw it. And boy, life was good in Babylon. The word escape would puzzle them. And I think it would puzzle a lot of people nowadays, even people who call themselves Christians. If you talk about, boy, you know, we have to try to pray that God will help us escape this old world. There's a lot of people who think, escape what? I, I, I enjoy the lifestyle that I have. Oh, I, I know it, uh, you know, it doesn't measure up to those old Bible thumpers, but I kind of like my lifestyle. I go to church when I get a chance sometimes, and and I pray, and I kind of, people tell me this all the time, I have my own beliefs as if that means anything at all. That means absolutely nothing. But if you talk to people in our world today, and I'm talking about people who say they are Christians, if you talk to them and use the escape language, they would look at you like you were out of your mind. What do you mean? We live in the most blessed country in the world, and and we do, but boy, when you look around this place, you realize that this place wasn't made for God's people. There's a kingdom of darkness and there's the kingdom of light. And those two haven't learned to mesh except in the minds of those progressive, more woke, open-minded sorts. And in God's mind, it's still darkness versus light. You know, most never went back. I told you that. Most never went back. But... Uh, Zerubbabel, he took back 50,000. Ezra would take back several thousand. Nehemiah would take back a group. Most of them never went back. They didn't want to go back. They didn't see anything wrong with living right there in Babylon. And, And it was as cool a place as they'd ever been in their life. And they disliked it. And they'll stay there. And in a few years after the Old Testament closes... Uh, about a hundred years or so, a young man named uh, Alexander the Great will come to town and overthrow the Persians. And boy, did he ever bring some whiz-bang to the culture. He brought in the Greek culture and the Greek thinking, and sexuality ran rampant. And boy, just uh, hedonism was the call of the day. And then after that, of course, uh, uh, the Greeks would finally fall to the Romans and Then the New Testament opens up with us desperately needing a Savior. If you look at our world today, and I I don't know that we'll finish this chapter today, but I I don't care. I'm not worried about that. I feel cooler now, so I'm okay. If you look at our world today, last Sunday, now I got to tell you, I'm way out of my league on these things. If you ask me, what it means to get a Grammy Award, I could not tell you. I know about graham crackers. If that's got anything to do with it, I like it. I, I, I wouldn't know. But I, I do know this, and you know what I'm going to tell you. A lot of you have already seen it on the news, but Grammy winner Sam Smith, and I'm assuming you get Grammy Awards for music, but he was 30 years old. And at the awards show last week, I I missed it. (laughs) But he did a satanic, basically a satanic worship service. And and man alive, Kim Petras was there with him. I understand Kim Petras is non-binary. I guess that means they don't understand computer language or something. I don't know. I got to brush up on a lot of these terms. But they did a song called Unholy. And it was a satanic ritual on live television. It was the most hellish thing. I just saw blurbs of it on the news. But now we could easily say that, well, people like that are idiots, Mike. You got to understand that. They, they don't know the Lord. You got to quit expecting an act like they do. I, I, I got all that. But do you realize that I didn't? I had to look it up. The song Unholy, I think for three months straight in 
Europe was the number one song, and it was a celebration of satanic evil. That's not just a few. That's not just a handful. It was the number one song, and it's topped the charts in America as well. I'm not exactly sure where it is now, but when I see that, I am like, wow, public sin in our day should break our hearts. It's incredible, and I know they laugh about Christians and, oh, you believe in all this kind of crazy stuff about a Jesus and all that coming back business and, a, you, know, the, you know, the rapture and the church and all of that. They make fun of us, but, boy, they don't mind at all. If they do something on Satan, they, they don't call that religious bigotry. They call that art. They call that entertainment, and it's not just that a few here and there are caught up in it. They thought it was incredible. Oh, the performance, my goodness. Those people that have their uh, glasses on a stick, you know, and uh, long cigarette holders and things. I, I don't know. The, the fancy people, you know. Um, boy, they, it, it's incredible, but they thought it was art. And, 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 but let me tell you this. While I was looking up some things about what happened at the Grammys, I came across another article. It's at a website called cruxnow.com. I believe that it is a Catholic publication. But I want to read you what this article said. It came out February the 10th of this year, very recent. Facing both a pro-abortion bill, and the arrival of a self-described satanic abortion clinic. I'm going to have to read this slowly. New Mexico, this is the state where this is happening. New Mexico's bishops shuddering are shuddering at the thought of what more might be coming. They are pleading with the state's citizens to protect the sanctity of life. Recently, New Mexico has become the latest Democrat-led state to work toward expanding abortion rights after the Supreme Court's Dobbs decision last summer removed a federal abortion standard and left it up to the states to decide. So states like uh, New Mexico have been fighting to bolster the law's supporting abortion. I'm reading again. Meanwhile, the new abortion clinic named the Samuel Alito's Mom's Satanic Abortion Clinic. That's the name of it. It's part of the Massachusetts-based, the Satanic Temple Reproductive Rights Organization. I, I got to read that sentence again. The name of the clinic is called Samuel Alito's Mom's Satanic Abortion Clinic, and it's part of the Massachusetts based, the Satanic Temple Reproductive Rights Organization. Recognize, now here we go, this is the problem. Don't look at me and go, Pastor, you can keep finding these marginalized groups all you want to, but you know, nobody pays them any attention. We better wake up. Recognized as a tax-exempt religious organization by the IRS, the organization seeks to expand access to medical abortions, conducts its own abortion ritual according to its website. Donations to the organization are tax-deductible and may be made in the amount of $666. It is unclear what the group's religious abortion ritual exactly entails. I tried to find some stuff on it. I couldn't. I'm reading again. The organization describes it as a protective right, the purpose of which is to cast off all unwanted feelings that a patient may be experiencing due to choosing to have a legal 
and medically safe abortion. In essence, it's a ritual to reassure pregnant women that their decision to get an abortion is the right one. Anyone in New Mexico seeking free abortion services from the organization must go through the ritual according to a news release from the organization. In the same release, Malcolm Jerry, a co-founder of the organization, said, the New Mexico clinic's name comes from the fact that in 1950, Supreme Court Justice Samuel Alito's mother did not have options. And look what happened. The article went on. That's enough. Public sin. I, I think sometimes we live in a little cocoon sometimes. I, I, we, like to, we like to just say, look, I, I, I don't pay any attention to that crazy mess, or I don't watch the news anymore. I, I watch less of it, but I, I don't, you know, I just, I, you know, one day the Lord's coming back, and, and, you know, amen, and all of that, <laughs> and we act like, man, the world is just falling apart. Here is our problem. God chose a force to be light in this darkness, and guess what that was? It's you and I. It's his people. We are to be light in the darkness. We are to be salt of, in this world that is so full of corruption. And, and I'm not saying that we have to go out there and get militant about it. I'm saying, first of all, we're going to have to wake up. And we're going to realize that, no, this is not just uh, marginalized groups of, of goofballs. This is becoming more and more mainstream. And like so many things that have happened throughout history, I, I wish we were better students of history because I've read about so many things in studying history that they started the same way. But by the time the serpent was noticed, he had already wrapped his coils and suffocating the victim had started, and by then escape or changing the situation was impossible. It was impossible. Public sin. He was also broken because of personal sin. These pronouns are incredible. Notice he says, we have sinned against thee. I and my fathers have sinned. How, what, 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 what does he mean? He wasn't in Jerusalem. He wasn't even born when they turned their backs on God. But do you understand how broken this man is? He is saying, I'm not here to blame anybody, God, because I'm not perfect either. We sinned against you. That's what's wrong with our we're people. And, and he can't look and go, well, boy, I tell you, I'm glad I wasn't part of that crazy crowd, man. I, I love the Lord now, and, you know, I'm all right now. And the rest of that, oh, I'm telling you, boy, they, you're right, preacher Mike. There's some crazy people out there. No, Nehemiah says, no, I'm broken over this. I'm crushed over this. I'm not just going to excuse it because it didn't happen in my generation or in my geography. It is a part of our people, and I know that I have failed God as well, and that my failures are just as bad as anybody else's. That's a man that is broken before God. And that's how we have to come. We have to stop this business of thinking it's everybody else's fault. It's somebody else that needs to get right with God. It's, it, it's somebody else that is uh, trashing the name of our Lord. I tell you, we have to come with the right pronouns and say, God, forgive us. Forgive us of our debts as we forgive those who have sinned against us, God. But start out by forgiving me of mine. Pretty amazing how he does that. I want to tell you something. Nehemiah will not be the last one to weep over Jerusalem. In Luke chapter 19, you don't have to turn there. We'll put it up and you can see it. Nehemiah, he weeps over Jerusalem, but so does Jesus. In Luke chapter 19, I'll just read 41 through 44. Listen to these words. 
when he approached Jerusalem. Now, I know you're like, yeah, you, you got four words in, that's good. But you need to understand, this is Luke, so this is one of the synoptic gospels. In other words, basically, it's the same pattern as Matthew and Mark and Luke. When you read about Jesus as an adult coming to Jerusalem, he came several times in John's gospel. He only came back one time in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And when he came back that time, he came to die. He's walking along, and if you read the passage right before this, they're doing, they're chanting, blessed is he who comes in the name of of the Lord. I love that song. I wish I could get over the context, though, of the verse because it's not quite as joyful. They're saying, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The same crowd in a few days will be going, Give us Barabbas and crucify Jesus. Same people. Jesus is kind of ignoring some of that. Matter of fact, the Pharisees told him, says, you need to calm this crowd down. Your fan club's out of getting out of sorts. And he looked at the Pharisees and says, well, if I stop them from praising me, the rocks will cry out. And you wouldn't like that either. So. But in the midst of that, it says, when he approached Jerusalem in verse 41, he saw the city and wept. Eklason is the word. Ek is out. Lawson is to weep. He, Jesus cried twice in the Gospels. Remember the other time? It was at the funeral of Lazarus. It's a different word for weep. The word for weep at Lazarus' funeral was a word that means to quietly cry or to, to kind of subdue one's tears. But Eklawson is a word that means you couldn't even stop it. You just burst into tears. And it's a wailing of a cry. It's a ek is out. And it's, it's coming forth from him. And it, it's uncontrollably the way he is weeping. It's when he got in sight of the city, he just burst into tears. And he said this, If you had known in this day, even you, yeah, as, as stubborn as you are, Jerusalem, as dumb as you are about the things that have happened around you, things that never happen in other cities, but they happen in yours. People that never had the spiritual privileges that you've had, but you've had them. He said, if you, even you, if you had known the things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes. If you could have known the things that make for peace, it could have been very different. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side. Jesus so well describes what happens in about 68 to 70 A.D., when Titus, the general, comes from Rome, sent there by uh, Vitellius, uh, or Vespasian, sorry, uh, sent there by Vespasian to take over. When he comes in, he will build these walls against the walls. He starts out with wood. The Jews burn them down. Then he builds other walls out of rock and dirt, and he just brings the soldiers over wide open. Jesus is so clear in how the destruction will take place. Some have argued that there's no way he could have known this. Now, when you're talking about Jesus and you start making statements like, well, how could he have known that? I don't think you understand Jesus. They'll throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side, and they will level you to the ground. And your children within you, and they will not leave you one stone upon another. Your children with you, Josephus says when the Romans came, they didn't have enough wood. They don't have trees like we have here. 
They didn't have enough wood to make crosses for everybody, so they took the children and they would crucify the mom and dad and put a noose around the children's necks and hang them around the necks of the parents. He said, yeah, your children with you. You're taking them where you're going, and they will not leave you one stone upon another because you didn't recognize the time of your visitation. I want to talk about that for a second. I I wrote a post for the blog about it, but this week. He says, now peace eludes you, Jerusalem. If you had just known, the time of the visitation is God, the creator of the universe, came to you and gave you privileges that most never will have. People nowadays spend thousands of dollars just to go to Jerusalem, just to see the places where Jesus walked. Jesus said, I walked in your presence. I was there. But you did not recognize the the day of visitation. You, you, You just never seemed to have gotten it. And it's like, I began, when I read this passage this week, man, it spoke to my heart because I began to think about us as individuals. Maybe, I know people that God put you in a great church. I don't mean to to brag, but I think Cornerstone is a great church, and it might not have been this one, but there are other great churches that are around, but God gave you a pastor that loves you and elders that pray for you, and, and God visited your life, but, but you thought very little of it. You're still doing the same things you used to do. You've not changed. Nothing's happened in your life. You still are just like you always were. You have failed to recognize the day of visitation in your life. You grew to despise the walls, so to speak, of the kingdom of God that separated you from the rest of the world. But one of these days, notice what Jesus told Jerusalem. He says, your enemies will come and throw up a barricade against you. I have seen so many that once they've had a stint in church and had a great opportunity to repent and get right with God and ask God to forgive them of their sins and become a child of God, when they turn back out into the world, their enemies come out and it is like they barricade them. The porn addiction is worse than ever. The alcoholism is now over the top. The drug addiction is completely completely out of control. Their enemies have come back and hemmed them in, and now there is no way out. Man, what an ominous word. Do you remember when God paid you a visit? Do you remember him putting a church in your life? Do you? A pastor in, in your life, maybe, uh, uh, that, that really preaches the truth? Uh, uh, he's, some, of them are, some of them are a bit uncouth. I, I, I've seen pastors that look like, that, that, like rednecks to me. Have you ever seen some of those? Maybe he was a little uncouth, but he preached the truth to you. Wanted to teach you the word. Even open the door up on Wednesday nights, and man, I would invite all of you that can to come for that. If you're a man or a woman, we have classes for women as well. But man, we want to teach you the Word. We want you to get past that. I just don't understand a whole lot about the Bible. Man, we want you to get past all of that. We want to teach you the Word. Do you you remember the day of visitation when God brought all of that into your life? But you just took it lightly. You didn't respond. Oh, it might have changed you some. But you failed to let God transform your life. And you pretty much stayed the same. And I got to tell you, this is what Jesus told Jerusalem. He said, the things that would make for peace you can't see now. You're as close to heaven right now as you're ever going to be, friend. Now, if you're sitting here today and you're going, man, I want to get right with God. I'm, it's wonderful. 
But most people who hear this are going to think, no, no, it's just some more of that stuff, you know, Preacher Mike does. I understand. They don't see it. They won't see it. They didn't even read the whole blog post. They didn't make it through it. Doesn't matter. For so long they have gained their peace from the affirmation that comes from those around them that are just as broken as they are. They hang out with people who have the same problems they do. And, and so they have numbed that feeling. It's the spiritual Novocaine, I suppose, that has numbed that heart to any measure of conviction. I, I can just tell you, it's a sad state of affairs when your eyes become blind to that which makes peace. Because then your life becomes open to that which makes disappointment and frustration, constant aggravation, overwhelming depression, anger issues that are out the top. Your life becomes accustomed to that which makes anything but peace. I got to tell you, that passage only occurs in Luke. But what, what a message from Jesus. Iniquity caused it. I'm not really looking at the time, but I got a new watch. just want you to see it. Indignity as well as iniquity. I'll move through this one. We may not finish the sermon. That, that, that's okay. Indignity as well as iniquity. The brothers at Nehemiah, notice Nehemiah asked them. He said, I, I, you don't have to come tell me. I want to know. I'm, I'm asking you, how are the people doing back in Jerusalem? In verse 3, they said to me, the remnant there in the province who survived the captivity are in great distress and reproach, and the wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are burned with fire. Today, I believe that the remnant of God, those that are truly born again, and don't forget, we are a remnant, okay? It's never going to be a nationwide movement. I'd love, I would love for Fox News in the morning to have a big news flash that President Joe Biden and all of Congress and every senator and every Senate aide and everybody in Washington were on their faces praying to God and begging for forgiveness. Man, a lie. It took me a little bit, but when I, when I awakened uh, from passing out, I tell you, that'd be incredible. I'd love to see that, but that's never going to happen, friend. We are a remnant. There's a group of us, and I got to tell you this too. It's not everybody who says they're a Christian is a Christian. Not every organization that claims to be Christian or it is Christian. Uh, we got to understand that. We're a remnant that, that God has saved. But it's, it's so amazing that we are distressed. In, in China, Christians die while their faith lives on. But here in America, it's like our faith has died and so-called Christians live on. That's why we're, I think, in far worse shape than a lot of them. But, but distress, secondly, disgrace. It says they're a reproach in Verse 3, the walls have been destroyed. The city is a joke. People just come and go, and it, there's no way to keep the enemies out. The walls are gone. Now, let me, since we have a whole book in the Bible dedicated to building these walls back, what is the big deal with walls? Well, if you live back in that day, walls distinguish you from everybody else. The wall is where everybody else stopped and you started. Was it like today? We have uh, boundaries and we have surveyors who come and they drive stakes in the ground and things like that. And those are so very, very important. I, I read Remember one time when a surveyor I was working with on some land I was looking at, 
he drove a new stob in the ground, and there was an old stake there, and I went to pull it up. He said, don't touch it. Don't touch it. He said, that old one there that you can barely find will always be more important than this one. Boy, there's lines of demarcation. Matter of fact, that same surveyor told me, he said, Rutherford County is the best place in the state of North Carolina to work if you're a surveyor. He said, there's more fighting about this land is my land, that land is your land, so you get off my land and you get on your land. I think it's a song, something like that we wrote. He said, it's the greatest county in the state. He said, we fight more up here about you being on my land than anywhere else. In that day, though, walls distinguish that this is where God's people live and that's where other people live. And when there were no walls, nothing distinguished God's people anymore from the rest of the world. I'm, I'm afraid our walls, spiritually speaking, are in pretty foul shape. It's kind of hard nowadays to find a movie Christians want to attend, a habit that they won't maybe do in, let's see, the word is moderation. Oh, yeah. It's, it's hard for them to come up with something that, that Christians won't do. The line that defines where, who we are versus who the world is Boy, when those walls were in shambles and they had people like Sanballat and Tobiah, he, he was an Amorite and, and Geshem and they had other people that we will meet later if we continue in Nehemiah. But they just came in and did whatever they wanted to do. The Samaritans came in and did whatever they wanted to do. There was no longer a clear distinction that right here, this is God's people. This is a city of God. This is a holy city. And out there is unholy. Holy, unholy. That line's not so clear. When the walls are torn down, I want to tell you, I fear it's not so clear nowadays either. Oh, we hate walls, man. I, I hear a lot of this nowadays. We need to tear down walls. Mm. If you live next door to a prison, I bet you wouldn't want that. Just say it. Some walls are there for a reason, and they need to be there. Church, it's not about keeping people out that we don't like. It's about things that try to infiltrate our lives and our homes. Men, we have to protect our castle. Boy, they hate that language nowadays, but I, I, you, I know it's, it's a... It may not look like a castle, but, but that's, that's a castle over there over which God has put me in charge as a man of God. And there's certain things that are not going to come in that house. And I don't care if people think I'm crazy or if people think I'm narrow-minded or people think I'm an old fuddy-duddy that needs to get with the times. You are not in charge of the spiritual welfare of my family. I am. So if you want to sleep with your doors unlocked, have at it. I don't care. We lock our doors. We didn't used to. But now that we've got Roscoe, it's to try to keep him off of them till I can get there. And then I give them the option. You want me to shoot him or shoot you? Either way. I can just tell you, though, it, it is time we rebuilt some walls. This gooey, uh, ill-defined thing we call Christianity nowadays, that as long as you just love everybody, we forget about that first and foremost commandment again. Love God with all your heart, your, all your soul, and with all your mind. So if you're going to shake your fist in the face of God, you can't expect me to embrace that. It doesn't mean I don't love you, but if you reduce love to me never offending you, then you probably 
are not going to like how I love you because I'm going to love you enough to tell you that that's wrong. Man, thank you, dear Father. He got us through it today. We didn't finish the whole sermon. I only say that because I don't know what time it is. So if we've been kept long, that way you'll think I let you out early. I, I, I don't know, but you don't ever bother me about that, and I thank you for it. But this was a word from God. It's a word from God. It wasn't good news for everybody. I, I can't make it that. I really do believe there are some people that they will die blinded to the things they need most in life. Blinded. They can't see it. Blind people, their world ends at the end of their finger. And sometimes they'll get extensions to help them like a, a cane or whatever. I learned a lot about blindness from my friend uh, the wheel we used to call him he was my black Old Testament professor at Gardner Webb University Dr. Logan Carson <laughs> he spent some time at our house I, I learned some things about it. don't go change the channel just because he can't see it doesn't mean he's not watching it. Went in a restaurant with him one time, and a lady looked at me and said, what would he like? Oh. I started to tell her probably a conversation with your manager. I didn't get to say anything. I'm blind. I'm not deaf. Oh, he was something. But their world, something can be right in front of them and they never see it. Never see it. You can try to convince them that it's there. I, 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 I remember one time he went with me to take my trash off and I had a really, really old beat up truck and he went down the side of my truck. He got out at the trash dump and he was feeling around my truck. Brother Snail Grove, that's what he called me. Your truck's beat up. I thought, man, that's bad when a blind man tells you your truck's beat up. He was brailing that old Dodge down the side. He had incredible insight. But there was so much in life he never saw that was very close to him. He had no idea it was there. But he was blind. Man, if your heartfelt conviction this morning, then thank God. If you felt like, oh, man, I need to get right with God. Oh, you should praise the Lord right now. Because so many, they yawn when they hear such. It's as if it's not even there. That day for them has passed. And now they'll live out the rest of their days completely blind to the Word of God. You say, are they doomed? Jesus said Jerusalem was doomed. Doomed. Man, if you feel convicted this morning, oh, praise God. Make it right with him. Let's bow our heads right now and close our eyes. Talk to him right now. Talk to him right now and say, God, thank you. Thank you, Lord, for convicting my heart. Thank you, God, for convicting me. Thank you, Lord, that my heart has not grown so cold. that I couldn't feel your presence this morning. Thank you, God, that when I heard this sermon today, that it touched me, it scared me even. It, it quickened my spirit, God. I, I, I don't want to go there. I don't want to be there.
Tell God right now. Tell Him how much you're grateful that He spoke to your heart. And tell Him right now you're sorry for your sin. Don't worry about somebody else's relationship right now. It's not about them right now. They may not even be in here. It's about you. Ask God to forgive you. And use the pronouns that indicate that other people's problems aren't yours. You are your problem. And take responsibility. And be broken before God and ask God right now to forgive you. Lord, I come to you right now and I pray for me. God, I fail you miserably. Forgive us of our sins. As Americans, forgive us, God. You bless this nation so, and we have absolutely spat in your face. Forgive us of our sins as a church, Lord. The golden opportunities that you've given us. And Lord, especially here at Cornerstone, God, and sometimes perhaps we've squandered those opportunities, Lord. I pray you'd forgive us. Forgive us, God, individually of the things in our life that have brought you dishonor. I pray, God, that today would do more than just quicken our spirits or, or, or bring conviction or fear to our souls. But I pray like Nehemiah, God, that people all over this building today would leave and they'd know they got, when they get home they got a phone call to make. They got a person they got to go see. Maybe it's a pastor. Maybe it's a brother or sister in Christ. Maybe it's their children, their wife, their husband. Maybe it's a home, Lord, that they have failed to guard. I pray, God, you give them the strength. This won't be easy. But, God, you can give them the strength to do the impossible. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for joining us today. If you have any questions or would like to know more about Cornerstone, please visit our website at servantsway.com or email us at office at servantsway.com. Cornerstone Fellowship is located at 1186 Hudlow Road, Forest City, North Carolina. Please join us again next week.